0: Well, good morning. It is good to be with you. If you would open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. It's kind of in the middle of the Bible, a little bit to the right, I suppose, of the middle. Isaiah chapter 9. I'm going to read verse 6. Isaiah, a prophet of God, who was advisor to the kings of Judah... In about the, the 700s B.C., 700 years before the time of Christ, writes this by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. For a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us. And the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The Dominion will be vast, and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Will you pray with me. Uh, Father, we ask now that you would open your, open your word up to us and open us up to your word, that we might behold the light of the gospel of the glory of christ please bless us to that end in jesus name Amen. well uh, for those of you don't know me my name is todd miles i'm a member here at henson i i get to serve as an elder and big news here it's it's christmas time right it's christmas time you should know that because i'm up here wearing a jacket and tie this is a christmas tradition that my wife is trying to instill in our family dress up for Christmas. You can look at my boys that are scattered around here and judge at how successful she was in that. Um, but, but Christmas is a time for tradition, isn't it? It's, it's, it's for doing not new things, but but the same things. And for most people, the samer, the better. The samer, the better. Uh, every family, I hope, has has traditions around Christmas, Christmas whether it's uh, putting up a Christmas tree, certain foods, activities. And and, and, and I know you realize that it's not really Christmas until you do those things, until you smell those smells, eat that food, do whatever the activity is. And uh, our family, we have a few other traditions besides just wearing a tie on Christmas. Uh, I'll, I'll share two or three of them with you, two of them very pleasant, one of them not pleasant at all. Um, so uh, my wife, uh, Camille, she wants to hit Christmas early and hit it hard. So our tree goes up shortly after the Thanksgiving day dishes are washed. In fact, before we even eat the Thanksgiving meal, we find on our plate for all in attendance, we find a present. And that present is a Christmas tree ornament, which she has picked up that commemorates something from each person's year and uh, and so we have like 15 years worth of Christmas tree ornaments it's like a a walk down uh, down memory lane for our family so you know like one year I wrote a I I I wrote a book uh, uh, superheroes can't save you so there is a Superman ornament on uh, on our tree and then my last books about marijuana so there's a marijuana leaf on our tree and um, yes which, and so that 's one that she started she 's also v- very kindly done a couple of Miles family traditions that, that I grew up with. One of those is that we usually paint a picture or, uh, on our on our big window out in front. We do that every year. Um, so it's, if you've been by our house, it's over in the corner, it's Calvin and Hobbes this year. And, uh, and, and then, and then my, my grandmother had a recipe for this like Czechs party mix that, that we, that she cooks. And it's, for some reason we call it gizzies. I, I I don't know why, but, but I love that stuff. And the smell's overpowering when you, when it's being cooked. And and when I smell it, I know it's Christmas, it's Christmas. Here's the not so pleasant one. My wife has nothing to do with this because it is uh, not, not so pleasant, um, Growing up, I always spent Christmas with my mom's sister's family, my my aunt. And my aunt was a piano teacher. And we each year at Christmas, we'd be there for four or five days and maybe like the day after Christmas, we would put on a Christmas recital, a Christmas recital where all of the kids, my brothers and sisters and my cousins would perform with singing, playing instruments, piano, whatever band instrument we played at the time, that kind of thing. And and here's the embarrassing part about it, is that invitations would go out, and it wasn't just our family that attended, but neighbors and people from the town would show up. And and that made perfect sense to me, because, like, who wouldn't want to listen to me play the saxophone, right? I I was pretty good, or so I thought. Um, So my my aunt was the, the piano teacher, and her little recital hall family room would just be full of people to watch the Miles kids and the Blessinger kids perform. And that made perfect sense to me at the time. But now I look back on it and I realize, oh yeah, one of my cousins was a child prodigy on the violin who now plays all around the world and for the Oregon Symphony. His brother, my cousin, is an audio engineer in Los Angeles. The last time I was in his studio, I got to hold the Grammy Award that he had just won. So they were good. (laughs) But in my mind, everyone was there to listen to me right and and, and i have heard the recordings of it and it's yes it's as bad as you would expect listening to me honk out the friendly beasts on the saxophone and and i talked to my mom and say, how could you do that to me and she would say well i thought you were pretty good she and my dad are both with the lord now so i guess i have to forgive them for that so so, so Christmas is a kind of tradition, but, but the first Christmas was, was anything but traditional. And what we'll find out from our text this morning, Isaiah 9, is that the prophecies concerning what we now celebrate looking back on, that first Christmas, they were anything but traditional. The, the, the prophecy announced by Isaiah, it announced a work of God so radically different that it probably sounded like it was too good to be true. But here's the good news. It wasn't too good to be true. Because God promised to do it. And in fact, it was so good that it had to be true. So uh, the the main point this morning is this. Christmas celebrates a kingdom like no other, with a king like no other, with a reign like no other, and a guarantee like no other. So let's let's dig into this in Isaiah chapter 9. Look at verses 1 through 5. I'll begin in verse 1 where, we, where God announces one day there's going to be a kingdom like no other. Look at verse 1 of Isaiah 9. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan and to Galilee of the nations. Okay, what what's going on here? Well, Isaiah starts with something that the people of Judah they would have been very aware of, the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel. In the 730s BC, the Assyrian empire had devastated Israel, taking the 10 northern tribes into captivity. The Lord delivered Israel into the hands of the Assyrians due to the unfaithfulness of the Israelites. And so in Isaiah's prophecy, he takes his audience to where the conquest began. The tribal territories of Zebulun and Naphtali that are mentioned here, those were the invasion portals, if you will. The way into Israel for the Assyrian warlord and king, Tiglath-Pileser III, about 733 B.C. And then once into Israel, the Assyrians carved out three provinces that roughly cover the trade route from Mesopotamia to Egypt. That would be the way of the sea. And in Gilead in southeast Syria, which we in the prophecy is called Galilee of the Nations. And now for isaiah's immediate audience assyria was threatening judah so in in, in judah's thinking this is the last place where deliverance could start it was the foothold of the enemy it would kind of be like people in the bible belt being promised that there would be religious revival that was going to sweep through america and the world and it would start in las vegas or san francisco (laughs) or portland portland right So unlikely, the least likely place to see a turnaround. Isaiah's announcement was basically this. The the place most militarily oppressed and the most conducive to pagan influence is going to be honored by God as the origin of the kingdom restoration. It would all start there. And the the kingdom restoration, as we read on, it would be emphatic. Look at at verses 2 and following. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. Verse two here continues the announcement of a restored kingdom that would be like no other. And Isaiah paints a picture of contrast between darkness and light, between those walking in darkness and those who are walking in light. And and we all know that from experience, what walking in darkness is like. And we know what it's like when you actually turn on a light. It's, It's Well, it's literally night and day, isn't it? Though the experience of the people at the time, and especially in the place where he's talking about, was that of darkness. In that very same place, they would see one day a great light. And in that contrast, the light would shine all the brighter. A great light shining. This, this also should tip us off that this is a work of God, because where God speaks, light comes Creation starts with God speaking light into a cosmos that at that point had none. And, and, and here we have, as it were, a new creative work. The creation of a new and restored kingdom. And it's all the work of God. And then Isaiah predicts that the destiny of Israel, a nation that had divided and then had been conquered, it would, it would not just be reunification, but it would be expansion. Did you notice that? In fact, the the only thing that will outpace the size of the nation's growth is its joy. The prophet compares the joy of an unusually great harvest or the spoils of war that are brought back home to what the Israelites will one day experience. And what will cause that rejoicing? Well, light. What is this light, though, in the darkness? And it becomes very evident. It's liberty. Liberty. The liberation from oppression. And the language here is emphatic. God will shatter the oppressive yoke. God will shatter the rod upon their shoulders. And how decisive will that victory be? It will be like when Gideon defeated the Midianites in Judges 7. There in the valley of Jezreel, the site of one of the greatest military deliverances in all of Israel's history remember he had just a handful of men and by the time it was over no casualties at all the yoke of the oppressor will be broken freedom total and complete complete freedom relief safety peace happiness pleasure liberty where once there was gloom there will now be incredible joy and rejoicing The kind of joy that comes from being brought back from the precipice, brought back from the jaws of death to enjoy the blessed life. The kind of joy that comes when you have no earthly hope, no reason to hope. You've all but given up hope and there's just a sliver that remains. And then the reversal of fortune comes and there's joy, unadulterated, laugh until you cry Joy. That's what's being promised here. And this kingdom restoration, it will be final. Look at look at verse 5. For every trampling boot of battle and the bloody garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. This kind of victory is so final. It's so conclusive. It's so complete. That's all that's left at the end is just to clean up the mess. You burn the boots and the garments because they're soiled and bloody. But for Israel, you burnt the spoils of war as an offering to the Lord. Military equipment was set on fire as a means of dedicating it to God. Now remember the original audience. Israel, the people of Judah, looking up at oppressive Assyria, knocking at their gates. This prediction must have seemed ridiculous. Remember Isaiah, he served the kings of Judah during that time that Assyria held prominence on the world stage. They had powerfully and brutally ravaged the northern kingdom of Israel, and Judah had a front row seat for all of that carnage, and they had to be terrified. They were well acquainted with the gloom of the distressed land, and humanly speaking, the northern tribes, now utterly destroyed by Assyria and the southern kingdom of Judah, he no hope of facing the might of that inhumane world empire. Maybe for some of us, we don't have Assyria staring down at us, but maybe you've been beaten down. The people around you, the world has done you wrong. Maybe, maybe you've made a complete hash of your life. Then you're now reaping all the consequences of, of your choices. And it feels like, man, I, I just got nobody to blame but myself for this. For, for some of you, I know that 2021 was even worse than 2020, which nobody would have thought was possible. And the prospects for 2022, they, they don't seem all that bright. Perhaps you feel the gloom and the darkness, uh, a bad medical report, kids not making the kinds of decisions that you hoped they would, that you prayed that they would all of their lives. Maybe your, your mental health or the mental health of those you care deeply about is, is slipping and, 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 and you know you can't do anything to make it better. It feels irredeemable. I would encourage you at this point, remember the announcement of Isaiah where, where the dark is thickest, where the gloom is heaviest. That is where God steps in with victory that is unimaginable. Now, I'm not here to peddle some sort of prosperity gospel. Like, I know it feels bad now, but wealth is right around the corner. That's, that's not what I'm talking about here. The deliverance that is promised in this passage, I think, is different than that kind of health and wealth gospel. But it's different in significantly better ways, as we're going to see. Friends, this is what Christmas is about it's really all about hope. Because what Israel could only look forward to with a lot of unanswered questions, we, living now, we get to look back at the fulfillment of what they saw as only future. And we look back on it with more understanding than they could have attained. So let's, let's cut to the chase of this. What is this great light? Well, you guessed it. Jesus. Jesus is that great light. In fact, the Bible tells us that Jesus is the light of the world. And where did Jesus begin his public ministry? In Capernaum, in the north. Matthew wrote that this Isaiah passage was fulfilled in Jesus when he began his ministry in Galilee. Galilee of the nations. Galilee of The Gentiles and what a great light it was. Matter of fact, John said this about Jesus, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. But and and more than that, they, they, they saw the person of Jesus, those who were there during his first Advent ministry, but they heard his words. They heard him announce the kingdom, his, his teaching on the nature and the ethics of the kingdom, his, his calls for them to repent. That was how the light was manifested in Galilee. And it shone bright. And you know what it still does? Why? Because Jesus, this great king, is alive and he still speaks today. So I would encourage all of you, expose yourself to the light. Children, Teens who who are here listening to me, read the words of Jesus. Read the words of the great light giver. Meditate on his teaching. That is, think about them. Think about them. Adults or or, or anyone struggling with the darkness, uh, allow Jesus to speak light and insight into the gloom of your dark world. Listen to his ethic. And where he goes, you follow. And where he leads, you go. The restoration of the kingdom like no other begins with the announcement of a king. And as the next couple of verses in Isaiah are going to make clear, it's a king like no other. Look at verse 6. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. So what we have here, it's a birth announcement, isn't it? It's a birth announcement. But it's a birth announcement unlike any we've ever heard before. It's not what we might have expected. Maybe it's not what the people of Judah were expecting when they heard that deliverance was going to come. Because it feels like so long, right? A baby's going to be born. That's the answer. There's no trumpets. There's no great fanfare, though the angels at Bethlehem did the best they could, I suppose. But deliverance will begin when a baby's born, which meant it would take time, but it's going to be done right. But notice the words here, and they are so wonderful and so beautiful, and don't don't let the, the, the prepositions just pass you by here. It's a child born for us. It's a son given to us. This matches the incredible news that the Angels gave to the shepherds on the night that Jesus was born. Today, in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. Friends, if you hear absolutely nothing else today, let this be the message that you walk away with. Christmas is about a son being born for us. God is giving the son to us, to you. Jesus was born for you. So if you ever wonder, is is God watching? Does he see what's going on? Is God listening to me? Does God care? Remember the emphatic lesson of this very first Christmas. God has sent his son for you the God who knows you better than you know yourself, the God who knows precisely what you need the most, left heaven's glory to become what we need the most. The good news is that this child is born for us, born to rule God's kingdom. The greatest king in Israel's history, David, had been flawed. The royal line had, had seemingly failed. The Davidic line was decidedly not up to the job, but, but not so with this child, we're told. The government of the restored kingdom will be on his shoulders. And, and, and remember, in the previous verses, we read how God had broken the yoke that was on our shoulders. He had shattered the rod It was on our shoulders, and in its place, the yoke of governance is now placed upon the shoulders of His Son. And those shoulders accept that yoke of government readily. Readily. And we might think well, what on earth could qualify? What on earth could qualify the Son for a task like that? Well, here are the qualifications of the king like no other. Look at at the rest of verse 6. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Literally, he, that is presumably God, will call his name. These are the nicknames, if you will, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And these aren't the kind of snappy Sarcastic nicknames that a child will pick up in middle school from his dopey friends. These names come with divine imprimatur. They are descriptive titles by none other than God himself. They are truthful. They're insightful. So what kind of king would this child be? Look at the names. We start with wonderful counselor. Awe-inspiring wisdom and counsel come to mind when we think of the wonderful counselor. He has what it takes to rule in terms of of wisdom. And this wonderful, the the, the Hebrew word there is is the closest idea that we have in the Old Testament, a word describing supernatural. It's it's awesome, amazing, wonder, sign type of stuff. Bringing a wisdom apparently that is far above that, that ordinary humans could attain. God would work in and through this son to demonstrate his extraordinary wisdom to plan wonderful and miraculous things. And and, and of course, we see this in Jesus. The the New Testament authors spoke of Jesus this way, in Him, in Jesus Christ, in the Son, given to us and for us, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So, Teenagers, as you deal with with all that you have to as as you... Go into It feels like battle daily, looking for acceptance, trying to make sure that you walk the line the right way. And am I doing stuff the way that I'm supposed to? Do you recognize this to be true of Jesus, that in him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? That that, that his wisdom, his way is actually the wisest way. His words are worth following and listening to. His teachings are not old-fashioned or hopelessly out of date. Try him out. Listen to him. His counsel is remarkable. Fashion your life after his. Walk in his footsteps. Obey him. It is the surest path to success and joy. And it is the only path to life. True life. Indestructible life. Kind of life that's not threatened by the vagaries, the hostilities of this Fashion, conscience, Instagrams, social networking, living on outrage world. The life Jesus offers is impervious to fashion, time, abuse, disease, illness, death. Those things may very well come in this world. But they will not have the last word. If you want authenticity, if you want wisdom. Run to Jesus. If you want to be accepted in the deepest part of who you are, truly are, run to Jesus. He's the wonderful counselor. He's also apparently mighty God. That's a strange thing to say of a baby, a human to be born. The pagan nations, though, they often worshipped their human leaders as divine. But Israel never thought of that. It was the furthest thing to remind. It was absolutely forbidden. The kings of Israel were not divine in any sense. There was no question that the kings of Israel, as, as great and as exalted as they might be in their royalty, they were merely and only human, but not so this king to be born for us. No one in the Bible is named Mighty God. But a chapter later in Isaiah, he makes clear that Mighty God, verse 21, chapter 10, that's the name of the Lord. This son who will be born for us is the Lord himself. A couple chapters earlier, in Isaiah chapter 7, the Judean king Ahaz was told that deliverance was imminent, that a sign that this was so is that the virgin would conceive and give birth to a son. And he was to be named Emmanuel, or God with us. And, and who wouldn't want that? We want God with us. And, and, and I suppose it would have been natural, at least, at least when you're looking at it or listening to it for the first time, it would have been natural to understand that that, that name, Emmanuel, it only meant that God was going to intervene, that he was near, that, 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 that he was going to do something through this person, who was probably just merely human, but God was going to act, right? But, but now we find out in chapter 9 that the name of the child to be born in our text, the one who, Emmanuel, Isaiah 9 demonstrates that the presence of God would be manifest in the person or the son to be born. That is literally the boy to be born is God in the flesh. God in the flesh. The Apostle Paul wrote about it this way. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him to dwell in Jesus, Colossians 1.20. I want to pick up on this mighty God aspect in just a moment to, to tie it all together. But look at the third name. And this is the strangest one. Eternal Father. Eternal Father. This is probably the most confusing of these four titles. Right? Because how can the baby to be born be the eternal father? And it gets even more confusing for Christians who typically would think everlasting father or eternal father that seems like a better name for god the father not god the son so what's going on here I'm, I'm going to try to tie it together in a moment but at least for now in this in this instance eternal i think speaks to a rule that will last forever and when the king comes what we're told is that this rule it will not just be temporary There is no fear that it won't last. And Father, I think, points to compassion and care and discipline. It it, it speaks to the the nature of the rain, what he will bring to it. Of course, this reminds us that the promise made to David 200 years before Isaiah wrote is finally coming true. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, God promised David. And in America, we're used to the peaceful transfer of power every four to eight years or so, but it's a transfer of power still. That transfer brings its ups and its downs. Each, each new president brings new hopes or disappointments that depend, you know, I suppose it depends on who you voted for. Are you excited? Or are you disappointed? Are you scared? Are you happy? How tired you were of his administration or how tired you were of the previous administration? But around the world and throughout time, the transfer of power usually brought chaos and abuse, often in the form of bloody military coups or worse. And and, and Israel was no stranger to this, especially the northern kingdom. They They were used to that kind of transfer of power, and it happened often with them. But a king who reigns eternally means that there's no reason to fret, no, no reason to wonder what the next administration is going to be like or whether the next leader will be a tyrant or a friend. And the promise of everlasting father that there will be no more transfers of power, that the best possible king is not a short-time leader, nor will he ever be a lame-duck king. He will reign forever and ever. And that rain will be characterized by all that the fatherhood of God is meant to convey. Kindness. Greatness. Gentleness. Compassion. A blood that is thicker than water sort of love for his children. And lest any be afraid that this eternal rain lest any be afraid that we might wish that it were temporary. Look at the next name, Prince of Peace. The king will bring peace to all of his people. And that peace is not just the absence of warfare or conflict. It is, in the Hebrew, shalom. The good life, welfare, prosperity. I asked earlier, what qualifies this king to reign? And the answer from heaven These are his names, wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. Now, I don't know if you noticed in these four names, but there's really something Trinitarian about all of them. We have mighty God. That's pretty much the standard name for the one God, the God of Abraham and Moses and David. And then we have everlasting father. That sounds a lot like something that God the Father would be called. Prince of Peace sounds like the promise of the Davidic King, a good name for the incarnate Son. And then Wonderful Counselor sounds a lot like what Jesus called the Spirit in the upper room in, before Jesus went to the cross in John 14 through 16. So we have Mighty God and then what looks like Father, Son, and Spirit. But this this is talking about the sun. So what's going on? Now, I I, I don't think this is an accident. And I'm I'm not going to completely geek out here by diving deep into theology. But later on, if you want to ask me about inseparable operations, you can do that if you want. And I will probably punt, but but I'll, I'll, I'll try my best to explain what's going on there. But here's what I do want to say to all of you right now. All four of those names... They should tell us that when the Son is given to us, that God in all of his fullness is being given to us. Does that make sense? We we are not given partial God or semi-God or demi-God. We get almighty creator God. All that is in God is present in Jesus Christ, the baby born for us in Bethlehem. I've often said, if you've ever heard me teach before, that that if there was a checklist of everything that it takes to be God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit could check every single box. And so even though we call God the Father, Father, all three share the same exact attributes and character. Jesus called the Spirit the Counselor, but remember that Jesus said he was sending another Counselor right someone like him so the son and the spirit are identical in essence and in character mighty god mighty god that is jesus christ born to mary the eternal compassionate king that is jesus christ born in a stable prince of peace only god in all of his fullness can deliver that kind of prosperity that was and is in jesus christ Wonderful Counselor, that was and is Jesus Christ. The baby that the Magi traversed countries to bow before and worship. Know this, that when you hear, when Christmas comes and you're thinking about Jesus, think this. When you get Jesus Christ, you get God in all of his fullness. When Jesus takes the throne, it is God in all of his fullness on the throne. And Christmas celebrates this fact, right? That the son was given to us and for us. The king who will reign forever is God in all of his fullness. Jesus Christ is our savior. What? He brings all that is in God to that task. Jesus Christ is our great high priest. He sits right now at the right hand of God the Father interceding for us. And he brings all that is in God to that task. Jesus is our friend, the friend of sinners. And he brings all that is in God to that task. And Jesus is the head of the church. And he brings all that is in God to that task. When we read these names, think the son born for us, the son given to us, is fully God. And all that is in God is fully in Jesus. Well, if that's the case, if this is the kind of king that will rule, then we would expect his reign to be like no other. And that's exactly what we see in verse 7. The dominion will be vast. Its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The reign here is described as vast and it's shalom. It's peace will be eternal. It will literally never end. The reign of the king will brook no rivals. There are no contenders to his throne. This reign is the fulfillment, as I said earlier, of the promises made to David, Israel's greatest king, up to that point. When the Lord made a promise to him that he would have a son, someone from his line that would reign forever and ever. And we've looked at what the king is like, so it's, it's only natural that his kingdom would share in his beautiful character. And that's what's promised. His kingdom will be characterized by justice and righteousness. There are no breaks. There are no miscarriages of justice. No gaps, no cracks, but perfect, unending, no compromise, justice and righteousness. I asked earlier, okay, so so, so God's broken the yoke of slavery and the rod of our oppression. And he's placed the government upon the shoulders of his son instead. And so... What what, what kind of rule would he exercise? And if you're human, you know that oftentimes when a tyrannical ruler, a tyrant, is put down, the government that replaces him is usually worse. It's usually worse. But we're assured here, what will God replace the yoke of oppression with? Justice. Justice. And righteousness. And isn't it interesting that in our time right now. We, I don't know that we've ever been so justice conscious. As we are right now. Wouldn't it be wonderful. To have a king. A ruler. Who reigned with absolute justice. Well this is the greatest news ever. A world thirsting. For justice is promise that a king has come and is coming who will reign with perfect justice. Now, maybe you're a little like me, perhaps cynical of government. Well, then I wouldn't blame you because you're kind of like me, right? Just know we need to remind ourselves, don't we, that government and authority are good things. They're, They're gifts from God. And when it is the wonderful counselor and the prince of peace seated on the throne, we will need never, ever worry about abuse or misuse of authority ever again. We'll be under the reign of the most righteous and powerful king who has ever lived. A ruler who is meticulously sovereign. And you know what? We will flourish under that kind rule. We will be more free than we have ever been before. We will be more loved than we have ever been. It will feel that way. And we will be more uniquely and authentically ourselves than we have ever been when the most powerful king reigns. That's kind of counterintuitive to us, but only because we're jaded against authority. We've lost touch, I think, with what good authority is supposed to be. And here's the thing. It's going to happen. Bank on it. There is a guarantee like no other. Look at the last part of verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Lord of armies in the CSB, you're probably more familiar with other translations, the Lord of hosts. That's God's fighting name. You don't want to come up against the Lord of armies. You don't want to face down on a, as a, as, as in opposition. The Lord of hosts. The reign of the king here that is described in Isaiah 9. Is guaranteed by the commitment that is the zeal. The excitement. And the activity. The accomplishment of Lord God. It's not something that just happens. Happens to happen. It's something that God will do that he will accomplish. And God is committed to this course of action. He's zealous to save, zealous to deliver. He's not indifferent. He's not noncommittal. He's invested and determined. Invested and determined. Those are lame words to describe the zeal that God brings to this task. At Christmas, we celebrate the birth of the child, Jesus Christ. God with us. Jesus is the incarnation of God, who in the words of the Apostle Paul, I suppose Isaiah 9, we have what it says. And I think Paul in Philippians 2, he kind of thinks back on this, reflects on it perhaps. Maybe it's a hymn that that he's quoting here. Jesus, though existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant taking on the likeness of humanity. Christmas starts with humility, doesn't it? Isn't that strange? Almighty God born in a stable. It starts with humility, and I suppose it took all the zeal that the Lord could muster begin in such a way. And at Christmas, we we celebrate the, the birth of the promised baby, the coming of the one given to us, for us, the arrival of God with us, And as is obvious from this prophecy, the the, the point of the promise, though, is not just the birth of a baby, is it? Birth of the baby is a necessary means to the divine end of seeing the kingdom restored. That's another way of saying, you know what, the baby's going to grow up and he's supposed to. He grew to be the most remarkable human being who has ever lived. And the Bible is full of stories that testify to his love, his intelligence, his mercy, his power. Never has there been such perfect wisdom coupled with such grace and compassion. And and we, we read the stories of Jesus encountering men and women who are bound up and enslaved to sin, who are oppressed by all that the world and the devil can throw at them. And we marvel at him. We marvel at him. Paul described it this way, when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. So again, the main point of God's kingdom agenda is not the birth of a baby, though that's a necessary part. The baby grows up to be a man and he lived a life so contrary to the world, he preached a message so at odds with the world's wisdom that sinful humanity crucified him. But that was not the end of the kingdom restoration. It wasn't even a challenge to it. In in fact, it, it, it was part of that kingdom restoration plan. Remember, it is the zeal of the Lord of armies who will accomplish this. Language of being born for us, given to us, it's perfect because he was born to die for us in our place. His death on the cross was not merely... The cruel machinations of a vile human and demonic forces any more than the tax census that brought Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem that first Christmas was the mere plan of a greedy Roman political system. No, almighty God, the God of armies is behind all of it. He sent his son to die at the hands of sinful men, a proper atonement for sin made for us given by God himself. This is the zeal of the God of armies. No one could have kept Jesus from coming and nothing could have kept Jesus from dying for us. And of course, even the crucifixion is not the end in itself, though it's a necessary part of the kingdom agenda that the Lord of armies was zealous to complete. God raised his crucified son from the dead and highly exalted him. And it was the zeal of the lord of armies that accomplished this and that means that nothing in heaven or on earth could have kept god the son in the grave and nothing in heaven or on earth can keep him from being exalted so paul went on he said this for this reason god highly exalted him jesus and gave him the name that is above every name so that the name of jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The invitation of Christmas is not merely to go look on the baby who was born, but to accept the kind gift of God. In the death and resurrection of that son born for us, given to us. The promise of the gospel is that if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord, that you will be saved. And that's why the baby was born for us. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. The story of the birth of Jesus is truly good news for a world that's divided by the partisan outrage that traffics as news. In our context, the birth of Christ is like a light shining in the darkest and gloomiest places of this world and in our hearts. And the promise of what the God of armies, the God of hosts, is accomplishing through what we celebrate on Christmas is that we can be part of that kingdom that is like no other. At Christmas, we celebrate the beginnings but we do so in hope that it will one day be consummated and we will get the kingdom in all of its fullness. We have good reason to hope because we know the king and we also know how zealous God is to finish his work. Christ's kingdom will come. What we celebrate at Christmas was just the beginning. God will bring that kingdom to consummation. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, we are, we are grateful that you sent your Son. We, we are in awe of the fact that you sent a Son to us and for us. And we pray, Father, that we would delight in that great gift this Christmas season. Father, may the good news of this incredible reign, of this incredible King, May it be on our lips and may it penetrate deep into our hearts. It's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.